If you've ever had uh, the opportunity or invitation to stay at somebody's home for a night or maybe a week or longer even, uh, you've probably heard the very uh, generous and hospitable invitation to, to make yourself at home. Been there? Just gone to someone's place and they say, make yourself at home? Or maybe they've said, Mikaza esukaza. Is that right, Kat? My house is your house. Most of us humbly accept that invitation, but in reality, for the first day or two, we actually find it pretty awkward to really take it up, don't we? To really feel at home in somebody else's home. Um, but the longer you stay, you ever notice, the more comfortable you feel, the more relaxed you become. And you actually begin to observe the rhythms and habits of that home and that family. And you even begin to start adopting them as you stay with them. And you begin to relax and very much feel part of the family and more and more feel at home in their house. That's just one illustration, I guess, to help us read and respond to the Sermon on the Mount that we find ourselves now in as we come to Matthew 5. We started in Matthew's Gospel before, at the beginning of the year and now we're up to Matthew 5. We're looking at the Beatitudes this morning, which the Beatitudes come at the beginning of three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. In John's Gospel, we hear Jesus say that there's many rooms in his Father's house and he's going to prepare a place for us. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us what it's like to live in the Father's home, to be a part of his family. He's telling us what life in the kingdom of heaven is like. Except we don't need to wait to get to heaven to know it and to live in it. This is life on earth as God's kingdom children. Jesus has already proclaimed at the end of chapter 4, repent, his very first message. He went preaching about the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, we are God's children now, aren't we? We don't wait till glory to become God's children, to enjoy all the privileges and blessings of being in his family. We've been adopted into his family. We've been delivered from one kingdom, kingdom of darkness, and we've been transferred, we've been plonked into, adopted and embraced into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's who we are now. And so he has said to us, this is my home. Make yourself at home in my household under my fatherly care. And this is how we live in my home. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, features repeatedly throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It pops up a number of times in the, the Lord's Prayer. It features at the beginning and the end, it bookends the Beatitudes. If you've got your Bibles open, please do have them open. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are all about, it's bookended by the kingdom of heaven. And then the sermon itself is bookended with the Beatitudes and then at the end, speaking about those who will and those who won't enter the kingdom of heaven. This sermon of Jesus, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, is all about God's kingdom. It's actually all about God's kingdom lived here on earth under his reign and rule. This is how God's kingdom children live how we work, how we relate. This is what it's like to be children at home 
in the Father's house. What is it like? Well, first of all, they're blessed. They are salt and light to the world. They're obedient, not only in outward behaviour, but in their hearts. Life in God's kingdom, God's kingdom children keep their promises. They're faithful in marriage, in life, in love. They don't take revenge. They love even their enemies. They are generous with their possessions and with mercy and forgiveness. They concern themselves more with the kingdom of God and his righteousness than they do their own needs and agendas. Trusting God their Father to provide for them. They treat others as they would like to be treated. And they listen to the word of God. Just had that from the children's talk, haven't we? They learn from it and they do it. Three chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, 6 and 7. It's only about 2,500 words. It's about half a sermon normally here at Corrie. I'll let you know the secret. Which means it only takes about 15 minutes to read or 20 minutes to read aloud. Can I encourage you to read it? All of it, as well as the smaller bits of it, bit by bit, and all in one hit over the coming weeks as we spend some time considering and preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Like the crowds who gather that day in Galilee, let's be eager to hear Jesus teach us and to learn from him. After all, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is for Jesus' disciples, both then and now. Back in Matthew 4.25, we read, and in 5 verse 1, we read how great crowds were following Jesus. And in the first verse of chapter 5, we read, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So this sermon that he preaches is all for his disciples. But I don't think that means of all the great crowds, there were just 12 fellows up there with Jesus on the mountain. In Matthew's Gospel so far, Jesus has only called four of his disciples. It's not till chapter 9 that he calls Matthew, the tax collector. Not till chapter 10 that we read about the 12. But at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you look to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, ah, finally the end of the sermon, we get to have morning tea. No, when, they all, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Who went up? Who did he go to teach? His disciples. But it's the crowds who have gathered to hear him. Jesus didn't go up the mountain. He saw all these great crowds and said, oh, I need to go find a quiet place to teach a few. No, he went up on the mountain because it was a better place to teach the crowds who'd come following him. It was a good place to teach. And there's a good reason why a number of scholars actually connect this with Moses. He was given the law, wasn't he, by God up on a mountain and he taught Israel on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Some call this sermon that the new law, the new way of life, God's kingdom covenant way of life under his care and rule. But Matthew seems here to describe the crowds as Jesus' disciples. Disciples in the sense that they're there to listen to Jesus and to learn from him. When he sat down, that's the posture of a teaching rabbi in the day. When Jesus sat down, they came to him. Jesus has got a captive audience here. 
They want to hear what he's got to say. He's got a mountain full of students. Isn't that amazing? A whole class of disciples, undistracted learners, ready, willing and eager to hear from him. What a joy that would be for any teacher. Where's Lockie? Wouldn't that be good? What a joy it would be for any preacher or pastor to have a whole crowd coming, eager to hear the word of God. Not just people who are keen to hear what we've got to say, but as Jesus says at the end of this message, remember the little parable about the wise man who built his house on the rock? Don't just hear these words, but wise is the one who does them, who actually obeys what Jesus has to say. Which really raises or answers the question that many ask of this Sermon on the Mount. Did Jesus really mean for his followers to do what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount? Some would argue, absolutely. Why would he waste his breath teaching otherwise? And that final parable, as I said, he says, this is at the end of it, I want you to do this. And yet others argue, no way. None of us could live up to this. This is so unreasonable. Surely Jesus is using hyperbole. After all, how many people do you see walking around with one arm or one eye because they've torn it out because it's caused them to sin? It's one of the things Jesus says in the sermon. And so it's too high for us to even reach, so we don't really have to bother with it at all. The answer, I believe, is neither of those. If it's all hyperbole and it's a bar too high to reach, then I think Jesus has wasted his breath. I don't think Jesus would do that. I don't think Matthew would bother putting it in there. But at the same time, it is a high standard, isn't it? If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, if you know what Jesus says, he tells us our righteousness needs to be greater than that of the Pharisees. And he actually says you have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who can live up to that? Well, the answer is no one can. That is, on our own, of ourselves, no one can live up to that. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, John Stott, in response to that same question, to those that think this is quite feasible and possible for us all to live up to, and those who say it's quite impossible, he writes this, The truth lies in neither extreme position. For the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every person, but nor are they totally unattainable by any person. To put them beyond anyone's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. He does expect people to live according to this. To put them within everybody's reach, however, is to ignore the reality of humanity's sin. He goes on to say, only a belief in the necessity of new birth can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. In other words, this sermon is for Jesus' followers. This sermon, he expects those only who have been born again, who live by faith and who have received the Spirit to receive this teaching and abide by it. This is the way of life for the children of God's family, his kingdom. It's the very law of God. It's the way God himself lives and functions and relates and therefore expects his children to live and relate the same way. Not everybody, not the whole world, 
but those who are part of his family, every one of them, every one of us who believe. And even as I say that, as we'll see in coming weeks, it's Jesus, isn't it? He's the one who fulfills the law, every jot and tittle of it. And it's he who fulfills and lives up to his own words here in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in him and by the Spirit that God expects us to live this way too. To hear and to do these words of Christ. Only in Christ do we have a righteousness beyond that of the Pharisees, do we? Only in him. And yet in him we have become the very righteousness of God. And so this is how we live as righteous people. God has actually perfected you. Did you know that? Didn't think that when you looked in the mirror this morning, did you? Or when you thought about what you did yesterday? God has purified and perfected you in his son. Be perfect as your heavenly father. So we don't actually have to try to pull ourselves up to perfection from the ground up. We actually live as God's made us to be in Christ. This Sermon on the Mount is not God saying, if you live like this, then I will accept you into my kingdom. It's not how it is. It's not conditions in that way. You are my kingdom children. This is how we live in my family. Make yourselves at home. This is how you'll be blessed, happy and most joyful in my presence. And more than that, God himself, our great host, our heavenly father, he equips us as his children and enables us to live as he's called us to live. Three chapters, we're going to take a number of weeks to go through it all. If you know the Sermon on the Mount at all, you at least have to come away with an understanding that God's kingdom children, the way of life in God's kingdom, is different. Different to the way of the world and different even, at least in Jesus' day and maybe in ours, to the religious leaders. Different both inwardly in our hearts and outwardly in our behaviour. Different in motivation as well as manner. John Stott, who I quoted before, his commentary on this sermon is titled Christian Counterculture. And it is, isn't it? He says, This Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under the divine rule. And in our day, we stand out more and more, don't we? This difference is starting to be more and more a contrast to that of the world in our own land and culture. Bonhoeffer said this regarding the Beatitudes. With every Beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples of Jesus and the people of the world. And their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. And the first thing I want to encourage us in this morning is that that gulf, that difference in our lives begins with blessing. Not with our behaviour, but with being recipients of God's blessing, his favour. Just as life did in the creation, didn't it? First thing God did, the primal couple, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Didn't tell them, go and do this and then, then I'll be happy with you. No, he blessed them first and gave them all they needed to fulfil 
what he called them to do. Same, it is, same way in the new creation. Our life in Christ begins with blessing. That's the pattern right through scripture. I could take us all the way through history, salvation history, and show you that, but for the sake of time, I won't. It's the pattern right here in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It all begins with blessing, doesn't it? And it's also the pattern of your life and mine, for every child of God. Your life begins with blessing from God. So what is this blessing here in the Beatitudes as Naveen introduced to us with the children's talk? What does it mean to be blessed here? If it's not stating the obvious too much, to be blessed is not to be cursed. It's not to have God's favour removed from us, his blessings, his provision, his love. The world might think that if you're poor or if you're grieving and you're mourning, or if you're hungry and thirsty, that you're actually cursed by God. In Jesus' day, many thought that. And I think today sometimes when we're going through those things, we might think, has God left me? Jesus turns that on its head. He said, no, no, no. You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. You're blessed if you mourn. You're blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Many of us would have heard versions of this which begin, instead of with the word happy, uh, blessed, they say, happy are those who are poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn. It's not a bad translation, actually, or interpretation. It is what the word can mean. But, as you might have heard, we tend to think of happiness as something subjective. I'm happy because I've got ice cream, because I've got lollies, because I've gone to Disneyland. It makes me happy. And that's okay, because there are good things here to make us happy, aren't they? We'll be comforted, we'll be satisfied, we receive the king. Those things should make us happy. But there's something more here. Yes, it is a divine joy, not just a human happiness. But this joy doesn't find its root in our circumstances so much in us. This joy we have is because we are recipients of God's grace and favour, his blessing. I don't know if you read Grant's blog. He, uh, he's been writing a blog for a number of years and continuing to do that. He's recently finished a little series on the Beatitudes. And through that series, he actually uses the word congratulated. It is those who are poor in spirit who God congratulates. Those who have lived their lives according to the way God would have them in the kingdom, God congratulates, he commends. My Greek lexicon at home tells me the blessed here are the privileged recipients of God's favour. It's how your life begins. Privileged recipients of God's favour. Some of us uh, know Ian Pennycook. He's written a few books. There's a few copies over there of some of his books. He says this. <clears throat> these, the Beatitudes, these are statements of fact. It's not a happiness that depends on our situation. These are statements of fact. They are the objective declarations or pronouncements of God about the disciple of Christ. This is what God thinks of you, not what you're feeling. The happiness, the blessing. God is stating his blessing, pronouncing his blessing upon you. And therefore you might feel happy, you should feel happy. One way I've been explaining it, as we've shared these at youth group and on Wednesday nights, 
is with the image of God smiling upon us. For example, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God smiles upon the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A little like the ironic blessing that we often use and hear from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord shines, his face shines upon the poor in spirit, upon the meek. He smiles with those who mourn and those who are merciful, etc. As I said, these are not things that we need to strain ourselves and try to live up to from the ground up. Like all good gifts from God and all the instruction in the scriptures for us, they're actually gifts of God that actually rain down from heaven to us. His face shining down on us. So let's take a quick look at each of these Beatitudes. As I've said to a few people, if I had my time again, we've had to have some introduction and then the Beatitudes. We should have probably done this over a few weeks, but uh, hold on to your seats. We're going to go through eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor here are not those who don't have much money in the bank or much theological knowledge, or much energy. The poor in spirit are those, for example, like the poor man in Psalm 34. This poor man cried. You know it, don't you? This poor man cried, and the Lord heard me and saved me from my troubles. The poor in spirit are those who know they, on their own, are helpless, and they need the help of God. For deliverance. The poor in spirit are those who turn to God, not away from him, like a beggar asking for help. And God hears us and answers us. He saves us. You see, the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to those who have got it all together. Interesting what the church thinks. Oh, sorry, what the world might think of the church. You guys think you've got it all together. No. We come and worship God because we don't have it all together. And he's rescued us and he's given us all that we need. Now, the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to those who have got it all or got it all together, the self-made independent man or woman. Now, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit and who cry out to God for help. And God says to them with a smile, everything I have is yours. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, it's not only those who are saddened and grieved by the loss of a loved one. We often think of mourning to do with death, and it is that. But the context here is more than that. It's those who mourn over sin, over the brokenness and injustice that takes place in the world, over oppression and abuse, those who are grieved by their own sin and the sin of the world, like the prophets who wept when they looked at God's people and their faithlessness. Like David, who cries out for mercy to God because of his own sin. God smiles upon those who mourn over their own sin and the sin of the world because it grieves God too, doesn't it? It cuts deep into his heart and so it cuts deep into the hearts of God's children. 
And the promise is they shall be comforted. There will come a day when there will no longer be, we're told, any mourning or crying or tears. They'll all be wiped away by the hand of God. And we'll be comforted, not simply because in the resurrection we'll all be healthy and well and it'll be okay. No, we're comforted because we no longer have to grieve sin. Because sin will be no more. And what about the meek? They are blessed, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't use the word meek very much these days, do we? Meekness is not weakness. It's gentle, but it's not weak. Biblical meekness is the deliberate refusal to assert ourselves and instead to commit our case to the Lord. Unlike what the world teaches... It's not those who die with the most toys who win. It's not those who climb the ladder fastest and squash anyone who gets in their way to get to the top. It's not them who end up with everything. No, it's actually the humble. It's the gentle, the meek. We had Psalm 37 read to us a month or two ago, two weeks in a row actually. Let me read some of it again. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land to befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Don't fret yourself with evil. But wait for the Lord and you'll inherit the land. It's a picture of meekness. Not forcing ourselves and trying to manipulate things and take action when actually we should be waiting on the Lord for him to intervene. It's not the pushy, but the patient. Not the bold or arrogant, but the gentle. Not the mighty, but the meek, whom God smiles upon and promises the earth. Quite literally, they will inherit the earth. Those who put aside their own agendas and trust God. Those who say, not my will, but yours be done. The epitome, really, of meekness. It's those whom God smiles upon. So let's pause for a minute. We've done three out of eight. How are we going? How are you going? If you start lining yourself up to these attributes. Meek? Mournful of sin? Brokenness? Poor in spirit? As I said, these are not challenges for us to live up to. These are not conditions of becoming a child of God. And yet they are the way of life for God's people. And if you're anything like me, even just going through the first three of the eight Beatitudes, you begin to realise, that's not always me. I don't live like this. We're not always gentle, are we, and meek. We like to assert our own will rather than trusting God's. 
rather than patiently trusting his authority and sovereign way. We don't always mourn the injustice and oppression in the world. In fact, we don't always mourn our own sin. Sometimes it actually gives us a little bit of pleasure, even if only for a moment before we feel guilty about it. But if you're like me, and that sounds a little bit like how you feel, if we do start to recognise that about ourselves and not like it, well, guess what? That actually puts us in good stead. Because what we're realising and expressing in such an honest reflection and confession is that we are indeed poor in spirit. That we can't do this in our own strength. That we need God's help. And we're actually beginning to mourn our own sinfulness and failures. And so Jesus' Sermon on the Mount does what many a good sermon should do. He reminds us of God's blessing. He teaches us the way and the will of God. He convicts us. Just when we think, yeah, I can do this. No, we can't. Not in our own strength. Can't live up to that. But then he comforts us with the riches of God's grace and his mercy, with the promises of God. And he goes on, blessed are those who are hungry or who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's plenty of places, isn't there, in the New Testament where we're told about fullness where Paul prays and he says, you know, we'll be filled with all the fullness of God. And yet there's another sense where the life of every believer is perpetual emptiness, perpetual lack. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you're hungry and you're thirsty, it means you're lacking something, doesn't it? You're longing for it. You're empty and you're longing to be filled. I wonder if our tastes have changed over time. I wonder if the church has lost its appetite for righteousness today. Have we become sweet-toothed, junk food, addicted believers rather than those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says later and his righteousness and all these things everything else you need will be added to you how often do I catch myself seeking all these things without even thinking about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness may the Lord have mercy on us his church and may he grant to us a fresh hunger and thirst for righteousness I think we need it today in the church this is who it's for and that's got to begin right here doesn't it in each of us we need the Lord's mercy after all it's the merciful who are blessed and they shall receive mercy even as we hunger and thirst for righteousness we want justice we want goodness we want justification in our lives and in the lives of others as we long for that and strive for that, we will actually also be merciful. Because God has shown mercy to us, hasn't he? And in turn, we shall receive mercy still all the more. Something of a cycle there, isn't there? We can only show mercy because God has shown mercy to us. And yet blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Remember the story of the unforgiving servant? 
had a great debt that he couldn't even begin to pay back. But his master forgave him all of it. He was shown abundant mercy, more than he could ever imagine. In fact, he didn't really receive it at all, did he? He wasn't meek. He wasn't poor in spirit. He actually thought he could pay it off. But it was more than a lifetime of service needed to pay it off. And yet it was all forgiven, just like ours is. And yet when his fellow servant came along who owed him just a little bit, what did he do? Did he show mercy? No. He showed no mercy, revealing really that he himself had never received the mercy that he'd been shown. And so his debt was actually restored. He was locked up until he paid it off. It was revoked. But then there's another story, isn't there? A real one. The woman at Jesus' feet who showed the Lord just how much she loved him, how much care she wanted to show him. She loved him so much, showing how much her sin had been forgiven, Jesus says. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. Her sins, which are many, Jesus said, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Any mercy and forgiveness that we show others reflects how much we believe we've received ourselves. The kingdom children of God, God has shown us great mercy. In his great, rich mercy, he's made us alive with Christ, hasn't he? God blesses those who show mercy. He smiles upon them and he showers them with mercy still. So too the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And again, if you're like me, we're struck, aren't we, with a pang of guilt? Yeah, okay, I can show a bit of mercy. I could do a bit of it. Don't know if I could claim to have a pure heart. Except the thing is the Beatitudes here are not options and little separate individual things. That are, yeah, I'll grab that one and that one, but I'm not sure about this one. But I, No, they're a package deal, like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. It's not just, oh, I've got a bit of love, but I haven't got much self-control. No, it comes together. All the Beatitudes together, this is the character and way of life for God's children. But if that's the case, then do we need to bow out at this stage? Because <laughs> our hearts are not pure, are they? We know that we're lacking. We know that we're not full of righteousness. But then again, as I said before, rather than bowing out, doesn't this throw us again upon the mercy of God? Doesn't this drive us back to Christ, knowing that we're not full, that we're not pure, that we actually lack righteousness, we hunger for it, and the only way we could ever be filled with it, we ever be pure in heart, is to turn to Christ? John says in his first letter, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our faith, our hope in Christ, and the love that he has for us, and therefore the love that we should... That's the purification of God, by the blood of Christ. How much more, the writer of Hebrews, will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit who offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will his blood purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, in Christ, you do have a pure heart. Not in yourself, not in your flesh, but in Christ. And by that same blood which has purified our conscience, God has reconciled all things to himself. He's made peace, hasn't he, by the blood of the cross. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. God's the ultimate peacemaker. And so like father, like son, like daughter, we follow in like ways. He's reconciled to himself all things. He's made peace by the blood of the cross. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. should never take that for granted. You have peace with God. No more wrath, no more anger, no more enmity. He smiles upon his children. Jesus, we know. What is he? Um, Prince of Peace. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He's the Prince of Peace. And so, therefore, are God's children, all of them. Not just peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Where there's hatred, where there's enmity, where there's a lack of peace. We've been called to make peace, to restore broken relationships. That's the way of life in God's family. No estranged members in God's family. Not always possible, is it? Not always easy, that's for sure. One theologian, Miroslav Wolf, Wolf, he's a Croatian theologian. And in the prefaces of, of his book called Exclusion and Embrace, he was talking about embracing enemies. And at the end of a lecture he gave, another theologian got up and said, could you embrace a Chetnik? At the time, the Chetniks were the Serbian fighters who in the 90s, the time that he gave this lecture, they'd been herding Croatians into concentration camps, destroying their homeland, murdering children and raping their mothers. And here's this theologian speaking about embracing our enemies. And he was said, could you embrace one of those men? To which he admits he struggled with the question and his answer. And he ultimately answered, No, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, I think I should be able to. I reckon that's a pretty honest answer. One that reveals our own struggles to make peace with everyone. Loving our enemies, doing unto others as we would do to them. Not easy. And there's some evil and there's some injustice that we have to say no until, there's, until that changes. Because as we're going to see, we're also persecuted. But there shouldn't be anything in us that would stop making peace with others. It's not always possible. Paul says in Romans, doesn't he? As far as it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everybody. But Jesus says here, there will be those who won't be at peace with you. They'll be persecutors. They will revile you. They'll speak ill of you. They'll persecute you. The differences that God's kingdom children live, the way we live, 
it actually shows in the world, doesn't it? It should show in the world. More and more so, the Christian counterculture that's evident in our lives actually puts others on guard. It can make them feel guilty. It can make them hate us. It can make them question us. And Jesus says they will utter all kinds of evil against us, falsely on his account. But he says, God smiles upon you when you're blessed, when you're persecuted for his sake, for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I know we've gone long and just about to finish, but that final one highlights one of the big differences in our lives and our hearts. All God's kingdom children, we actually have hope. Rejoice and be glad when others persecute you. Not because they persecute you, but because your reward is great in heaven. You see, we have hope. Our life is not just lived for the here and now. We live in the hope of things to come, the sure hope of God's faithfulness and all that he's promised, that one day we will see him face to face. And when we do, he'll be smiling at his children. Until that day, know that you're blessed and be happy. Know that God commends you. He smiles upon those who are his. And we don't need to be afraid to be different in the world as God's covenant kingdom children are. And we can know that there's blessing and there's promise and there's comfort and there's satisfaction. There are smiles all round for those who look to the Lord and learn from him and abide by his word. May the Lord refresh us, teach us in these things in the coming weeks.